We're continuing in our series, Christ is King, and today I have the privilege and the pleasure of preaching on the covenant of marriage. And so, we'll be, we've just transitioned from Christ is King over the individual, and if you remember, we looked at several different places that Christ rules over us as people, whether it be our members, meaning what we do with our, ourselves, our moments, our time, and even the purpose for which he has created us. And so we're continuing by now moving to the personal, to the corporate, and we're starting with the marriage, which as you'll see is the bedrock of society as it was created to be. And so I'm humbled but also uh, greatly encouraged to be preaching this particular word because marriage is the most beautiful thing this side of eternity because of the picture that it proclaims, the story that it tells. And it's been intended that way from the beginning. But given the nature of the topic, um, I'm, I will give a fair warning. I will be using the S-E-X word. So if you have children with sensitive ears, uh, be warned. Um, it's unavoidable. And so uh, thank you, Aaron. Ashley needs to. Yeah. And so it's unavoidable. But um, it would also be an, a, a great opportunity for you to have this discussion with your kids way before you ever intended to. So. And so uh, we will be in Matthew chapter 19 this morning, starting in verse 3. And uh, my three sub points will be really just hitting what Jesus emphasizes. The first point being created, male and female. The two shall become one and let not man separate. And so to give you a brief context of this, com- this dialogue that Jesus is happening, that Jesus is having, he had just come from traveling through Galilee. And there he was teaching uh, and also telling parables. And at this moment, there, were a cr- there was a crowd, and among the crowd were Pharisees. It says this was a large crowd. And the Pharisees were seeking ways in which to entrap him. They wanted to catch him either for blasphemy, which was the charge that they finally put on Jesus uh, before Pontius Pilate, but in any sort of charge. If, they, if, he was, if somehow he was teaching the law of God incorrectly, then they would have reason to indict him. And so you see this throughout the, the Gospels. The Pharisees or the scribes approaching Jesus, looking some, in some way, shape, or form to entrap him or to trick him, to cause him to stumble in his teaching. And so, if you will, join me in reading verses 3 through 9. We will read the text, and then we will pray, and we will start. Verse 3, chapter 19 of the Gospel of Matthew. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, that being Jesus, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let us pray. Jesus, we exalt your name. You are the Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And marriage is an institute established by you from the very beginning to display your glories among 
the created world. You have created it. You have defined it. You sustain it. And it is a gift from you, and it is a gift for you. So I pray that we, we would humble ourselves before your word, that we would cast aside any preconceived notions of, of the way we think the world works, and that we would submit ourselves to your clear, unadulterated teaching. Lord, would you be honored in our midst? I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our ears that we might see you and hear you and open our hearts and minds that we might behold you today. We are your people for your possession. This is all for you. And so please feed us the bread that comes from heaven. I pray and ask all this according to your goodness and your grace, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so I have three agendas here or three things that I hope this sermon does. I hope it instructs us. I hope that it challenges us. And I also hope that it encourages us. Because this is such a weighty topic. And we see that in its preeminence, even in the creation order. And so Jesus first answers the Pharisees in their attempt to entrap him. He answers them by appealing to the God-created precedent of marriage as established at creation. As established at creation. He, he says, to counter their indictment, he says in return, have you not read? Don't you understand? Is it not clear to you that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? As he's, it's as if he's saying, don't you already know this? Why are you even asking me? You seek to test me, but it's clear you don't know the answer to the question. Why does Jesus answer first with saying he created them male and female? Isn't that an unusual response to the question of divorce? I don't think so, and I think we'll all see why here in a second. Mankind, mankind, right? was made both male and female for the sake of marriage because marriage is a bedrock of both the created order and of culture. Marriage is a bedrock of the created order and of culture and by extension society. Marriage serves as the covenantal joining of one male to one female only. There are people we know them who would say no to that statement, who would say that it is a bigoted statement or that it is unloving. But as we'll see later, by Jesus appealing to the creation account, he's in no, in no uncertain terms saying that marriage, as God designed it, is for all society. It's not a uniquely Christian thing though it sees its fullness in Christianity, it is not particularly Christian and it, because it is the design for all people, for all the world. And so in the creation account, we see an explanation of the differences of roles and responsibilities of man and woman and how together those differences form a unity. And so in Genesis 2, starting in verse 18... Moses writes this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jesus appeals to the very create to the creation account itself to the very beginning and saying they were made male and female but not just that woman was made for man woman was made for man the term for fit right it it, it was not good that man should be alone but he needed a helper that was fit for him that's a very unique word because it actually means something that is opposite yet corresponding to the same word is used elsewhere in the old testament to mean someone who sits across from you and so it's this idea that the proper helpmate for Adam is someone who's not like him, but just like, enough, just like him enough that they would correspond to him. And so a fit helpmate is one that is not male, but it's female. There's obvious biological realities at work here, but there's also realities in terms of emotional, social roles, uh, and also the spiritual uh, emphasis we'll see in a bit. But that's, that's amazing that the proper helpmate, the one that was fit for Adam, is one that is opposite yet corresponding to him. From the very beginning, God has designed male and female, though different, to be one in marriage and become a unity. This ordering of events is also important in establishing the hierarchy of marriage. I know some of you might repulse at that word, but let's let Scripture explain Scripture. Woman was not made for man. Excuse me, I misspoke. Woman was made for man, not man for woman. From the dawn of creation... Women are intended to be helpmates to men. This ordering does not correspond to value or worth, but rather role and responsibility, okay? Because both male and female constitute mankind. There is no, uh, there, there's no difference in dignity or in value or in worth because together the both were made in the image of God. We are, both, we are all marked with divinity in the sense of we bear his image, and yet, and yet, there is an order, and this order is there for a reason. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's simply explaining the creation account. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, and so man is now born of woman. All And all things are from God. I love that he concludes that sentiment with that. All things are from God. That this very order is God-designed. And it fits the, the ideal of nature because it's how he designed it. And so you can't, buck against the order and expect God not to be concerned about it because he designed it this way. All things are from him. And so can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? No. And so a person's, and so therefore, because of all this, a person's identity, and by that I mean their, their physical traits, intellectual traits, emotional, social traits, all those things, so their identity, their roles, and their responsibilities are intrinsic to that person from birth, per the creation account. A man is a man because God created him that way, and therefore he ought to live like a man, as defined by God. Likewise, a woman is a woman because God created her that way, and therefore she ought to live like a woman, as defined by God. Meaning, you are what you were born as. You are what you were born as. 
together, man and woman, male and female, constitute mankind. They constitute mankind. And from the beginning, this is why Jesus uses, this is why Jesus references the male and female uh, dialogue. He's, because from the beginning, male and female were intended to marry one another and thus fill the earth and establish society. And so in a question regarding divorce, Jesus says, from the beginning, they were made male and female because marriage was always in view. Marriage has always been in view. There would no, be no need for marriage if we were all non-binary. There would be no need for marriage if there weren't distinctions in biology, distinctions in personality, distinctions in roles and in responsibilities. But in marriage, as we will see, there is a diversity that comes together and it makes a beautiful unity that paints a picture of who God is. And only marriage does that. In that picture, we see a diversity of persons, two people, becoming one flesh, one flesh. And it therefore portrays the beautiful nature of God himself, the triune God, who is a diversity of persons, three persons, but one essence, one essence. And marriage displays that for the whole world. Marriage displays that for the entirety of the cosmos. And so in the beginning, he made them male and female. In the beginning, he made them male and female. Jesus continues in verse 5, saying, Therefore a man, because they're different, because he made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And so it's intended from the very beginning that a man is to leave the household that he was born into. And he is to establish his own household by finding and holding fast to his wife. This holding fast, it's a term that means cementing or binding together. Okay? Every sentiment of the word is meant to convey permanence. Permanence. From the beginning, a man is intended to leave his, the household he was raised in and go and establish his own. And to f not just find a wife, but to cling to her. In the King James, it says, cleave to her. And it's, it's this beautiful picture of not only just binding oneself arbitrarily, but confiding in and finding intimacy within. And that's what this oneness that we're getting at means. So the man and the woman, therefore, are no longer two, but have become one flesh. This oneness is a God-ordained reality that is displayed in all facets of the marriage. Uh, biologically and physically, we see this oneness at the consummation of marriage. We also see it take place emotionally, socially, and, and spiritually. Um, for any of you who are married and have a, a good, healthy relationship with your spouse, I, I think you understand this, that there's this beautiful picture when your marriage is right. And I say that to mean you can obtain, you can pursue a right marriage per the scriptures. There's nothing magical about it because God designed it that way. Many believe that there's a soulmate or someone special out there for you, and we don't, I mean, we don't really see that language in Scripture. Do, do we believe in God's foreknowledge that he knows who you're going to be bound to? Sure. But if you're always looking under every rock <laughs> for your spouse and you think, oh, I found the wrong one, I'm dissatisfied, then you, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. The charge to believers is simply marry another believer and build your family. Build your family. Leave and, and cleave, says the King James Version. Leave and cleave. 
it is his way. This is his will and his way. And so every single marriage can be a healthy, God-honoring marriage because he designed it that way. The two shall become one. But going back to this oneness in terms of how it, how it's displayed in these various categories, the physical joining of two people first happens at the consummation of that marriage. This is so weighty and meaningful that the Bible use, often uses the phrase, he knew his wife. It, it's getting at this uh, idea of vulnerability and transparency. Like you don't know someone until you know that person. And you won't know them until this act takes place. But we live in a world driven by guilt and shame because sex is happening outside of marriage. It's being defined by man rather than by God. And so you have people experiencing depression or having desires that can't be satisfied because they're taking something that's not theirs. People are riddled with guilt and even suicidal tendencies or whatever it may be, uh, mental health problems because they're availing themselves to something that was only meant to happen within the confines of a covenant marriage. This is why adultery is such a tragedy and a perversion of marriage. It is a heinous and treasonous act in the sight of God. To sleep with someone, in, in a very real sense, is to be joined with him. We'll see later. Paul says that if you sleep with a prostitute, you now are one with her. Therefore, doing so, committing adultery, or having sex before or outside of marriage, is to take something that's not yours, and, it's to, and it, mocks, it mocks the designer of sex and marriage. As we saw in Malachi 2, adultery is a type of violence. You're taking something by force that God has not given you, and then you are profaning what he has given you. I'm going to read that Malachi 2 passage again. I did not know it would be our reading from the law. But, but look at this. this is, I, I want you to listen carefully, particularly because he mentions the one God and the oneness of marriage. The two are, are related. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so he's saying, like, you're committing spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. And then this, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he accept my worship? Because the Lord was, wit uh, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And this was the one God, and excuse me, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Adultery and or divorce is heinous, heinous before the Lord. He's meticulously and intentionally designed the knitting of the whole world. And in that process, he has established covenant marriage as the bedrock for society and as the, the most beautiful and most robust expression of manhood and womanhood. That can't be lost on us. That can't be lost on us. 
it means something that the two become one and that he has made you both either male or female. And we see this beautiful oneness take place in this sentiment here. For, for everything that a man is not, a woman is. Conversely, everything that a woman is not, a man is. And I get the joy of seeing this in my own marriage. <laughs> because I often think I have it together. <laughs> and then my loving wife will say, are you sure that's what <laughs> you should be doing? It's like, hey, woman. Uh, <laughs> And then I'm, uh, she lovingly knows when to push and lovingly knows when to <laughs> not. And I am served greatly by my spouse. Because we seek to honor the Lord our God and to live faithfully in the roles and the, in the responsibilities he's given us. It's a beautiful picture. Even when it hurts sometimes. It's a beautiful picture because it's as he designed it. This is the beauty and the role of marriage. To see two become one and to reflect the very nature of God himself, who is both a diversity and a unity. Remember, we are opposite yet corresponding, males and females, opposite yet corresponding, and marriage ties the two together in a way that no other commitment, no other relationship can. And as I mentioned earlier, this, it's this joining, this joining of flesh. It comes prior to any other specific revelation that God gives his people. It's in the very created order. It's a mandate for all of creation. Marriage, as defined in the creation account and as upheld and affirmed by Jesus, is for all of mankind. As I said earlier, it is not a particularly Christian practice, but it is of particular importance for Christians. As the full weight and meaning of marriage is revealed within Christianity. And so, I'll repeat this again. This is important to remember because many will say... You are a Christian, and therefore, you have your own definition and expectation of marriage. But you can't impose that on the world around you. Well, Jesus doesn't seem to agree with that sentiment. He says, this is how it's been from the beginning. This is how the world is supposed to work. And so we have good ground to stand on when we say marriage is between one man and one woman. That sex is intended only within the confines of marriage because it is, a, it is a spiritual act of the two becoming one. We have good grounds to stand on because Jesus himself assures us of that and affirms that. And so don't lose that. Don't lose that. But your marriage ought to be a beacon to all the world of who God is in Christ. And it's in the simple things. If you recollect to last week's message from Eric and how mankind ought to have dominion over the created world, not that we take advantage of it for our, our own interests, but that we steward and rule it because God has called us to do that as image bearers and he has given us that mandate. And that primarily takes place in the household. I mean, he, he, he specifically tells Adam and Eve, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. The church now has the responsibility of two ways of going about that. And the first way hasn't changed. We still ought to fill the earth with godly offspring. And that, that cannot happen outside of marriage. It won't happen because it's a broken home if it's done outside of marriage. But that's the first. The second is seeing spiritual children be birthed from the proclamation of the gospel. Going and filling the earth with disciples 
because we're calling people to repentance. The king is here. Repent and believe or be subject to his wrath on the last day. That's the other option. The church is called to both. We haven't lost the creation mandate. And so it is, it is a gift from God to be married and to rear children. I also have to say this because, well, I'd be amiss if I didn't, or remiss, excuse me. Uh, other than the obvious biological ramifications, beyond the clear disregard of nature and biology that a homosexual relationship is, it also doesn't work when you have two kings trying to rule a kingdom, does it? Has anyone seen a kingdom thrive with two kings? No. Has anyone seen a kingdom thrive with two queens? No. No. But many a healthy monarchy has existed with one king and one queen. And so beyond just the, the seriousness and the gravity of rejecting what is so clear from creation, it's also illogical in terms of the household to have two men trying to run it or two women trying to run it. We weren't made for that. We weren't made for that. We weren't made for that. Marriage is also a particular picture, as I mentioned earlier, of the gospel, of the gospel. And this, this is a, a really beautiful thing. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the, the roles, but I am going to read through this briefly. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember, oneness, oneness. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, here it comes again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what's Paul saying here? He, he's giving an overview of roles and responsibilities, but he's also saying this. The particular union of two people into one, because he repeats that phrase from Genesis, the same one that Christ uses. He says that particular thing, the two becoming one, is mysterious. In fact, it's a very profound mystery. And what it's really getting at is Christ in the church. But he, he makes sure that no one misunderstands him. He's saying, but that doesn't mean you disregard your, your covenant. Like, it, it, it doesn't mean that, well, I'm an imperfect picture, therefore I'll live imperfectly. He's saying, no, no. Your marriage is meant to communicate this incredibly mysterious yet profound truth. And here's why. Here's why. Marriage, as we've seen so far, tells the story of a man leaving his home to find his wife so that he can love her, care for her, lead her, and nourish her, that he might also be served by her and satisfied by her. A story in which she is his and he is hers. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? This is the story of Jesus who set aside his glory, left his heavenly home and dwelled among us so that he could love us, care for us, lead us, nourish us, that we might serve him and he would be pleased with us. 
in the gospel, the Lord gives himself to us that we would give our all to him. For he is the true husband, and we, the church, are his bride. The story of marriage is the gospel itself. In marriage, the mystery of oneness, unity, peace, and completion is put on display for the whole world. But this mystery is only fully revealed and comprehended in Jesus Christ and his union with the church, his bride. And so, Christ truly is king over marriage. It's all for him. It's all for him. Therefore, we do not neglect it. We do not sabotage it. We do not grow bitter within it. We do not hate it. Because it's from him, it's for him, and it's to him. And finally, we see in this last point, That because marriage is from God, established by him as a gift to us, but for his glory, therefore what God has put together, let not man separate. Verses, second half of verse 6 and onward. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In verse 8, it says, it said so plainly, from the beginning, divorce was not so. It was never in mind in creation. That alone ought to set the expectations of marriage. Jesus, again, is confirming the account from the beginning that what God has put together, man must not separate. Divorce was only a concession given by Moses because of the stubbornness and stiff-necked nature of Israel. They all murmured and complained rather than joyfully submitting to the statutes of God. Furthermore, Jesus establishes that divorce is adultery in the eyes of God. As I said earlier, adultery is both a tragedy and a perversion of marriage because the act of sex is the act of joining. Many think of monogamy as some kind of prohibition, as if God was cruel in designing sex for marriage only. But sex is part of the spiritual substance and unity of marriage. In fact, before modernity, there's, no, there's not a lot of evidence that there was a, uh, a ceremony around marriage. But what constituted marriage? It was a, a father giving away his daughter and the two consummating that marriage in the night. That was, that was the ceremony. Because sex is the marriage. It's the two becoming one. That's why adultery is so heinous. Because you are literally joining yourself to someone who does not belong to you. To someone that God has not given you. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Do you see that? He's saying sex is marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He sins against his own body. Well, if he's married, his wife is his body, and so he's sinning against her, but he's also causing harm to himself because now he's split and belongs to another. He is literally injuring himself. Paul 
in mentioning sleeping with a prostitute, he's indicating that it carries the same ramifications as sleeping with your spouse. You are joining yourself to them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There is no such thing as casual sex in the eyes of God. But we must ask then, Jesus is still responding to an answer regarding divorce. So what then does Jesus mean from verse 9? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there are typically two main views. Uh, The first is this. Jesus is permitting divorce in the aftermath of adultery. Because adultery has already taken place, the divorce and subsequent remarriage cannot constitute adultery. The marriage covenant has been broken in such a large way, the parting of ways, the option of parting ways to remarry is allowable. That's the first view. The second one is this. Jesus is not permitting divorce, but is simply stating that if divorce and remarriage should happen in the aftermath of adultery, the acts of divorce and remarriage will not be considered adultery because adultery has already happened. The differences are subtle, but it matters greatly how we understand this. Um, I genuinely believe the second position is the right position. I do not think Jesus is permitting divorce. There's a plethora of reasons, which I'll give you now. From the beginning, divorce was not so. So that one, case closed. From the beginning, divorce was not so. But I'll give you more. Jesus literally just instructed Peter to forgive 77 times. Just prior to chapter 19 and at the end of verse, in the end of chapter 18, literally, literally, Jesus tells Peter he needs to learn how to forgive 77 times. And he then teaches a parable on the necessity of forgiveness and that those who do not forgive from the heart won't, will also not be forgiven themselves of their debt before God. That's, that's, that teaching is, is uh, in keeping with what he's taught earlier, that if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. Many divorces happen because of unforgiveness, because a spouse commits some type of act against their spouse, and the two can't reconcile. They view it as an irreconcilable difference. And rather than pursuing uh, restoration and unity, they divorce. Uh, I would say the majority of divorce happens because of unforgiveness. And Jesus literally has just taught, always forgive. That's seven, that 77 times, it means forever. Because seven is a, is a picture of completion, right? Seven days of the week. Um, and, you know, it's, it's by... It's perfection and completion in terms of a Hebraic mind. So for him to say 77 times means you always forgive infinitely. And you do it completely. And then there's the response of the disciples. I didn't read this earlier. But there's a response of the disciples to Jesus' teaching on divorce. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so, I hope you can almost hear the hard-heartedness of the disciples. Their minds were blown by Jesus' teaching. Divorce was so common in Israel at this time for trivial reasons. Because Moses had allowed it you know, ages ago, they were, being, they were divorcing over all kinds of stuff. And so when Jesus says divorce was not so from the beginning, the two become one, they're like, if that's really the case, it's better that I don't marry. <laughs> and in kindness, Jesus responds, well... If you choose that, then you must be a eunuch for the kingdom of God. In other words, you're still married to someone. You're married to Christ and his kingdom. And you are saying no to the expression of marriage physically. Paul also says it's better to marry than to burn with desire. So it's a choice. Paul 
even advocates for singleness for the sake of the kingdom because marriage brings on other concerns and responsibilities. But he's saying, this is from me. This is actually not from the Lord. This is from me. And he says, if, it's better. It's better if you, if, if you have the passions for sex and unity and the, the beauty that's in a relationship, then you should marry because it's how God designed it. But if you want to give yourself and all of yourself to the kingdom of God, then you will swear off all those things and any desire thereof, and you will marry yourself like a eunuch to the kingdom of God. And so he does give that concession. But if you desire marriage, be married. Be married. And also, my last, my last point in why I do not think Jesus is permitting divorce is this. While painful, while painful, forgiving your spouse of adultery and seeking full restoration of your marriage is a mark of grace from God. And it is a beautiful picture of the gospel of grace to the watching world. The world divorces at very high rates because they view it more as a contract rather than a covenant. It's a convenience. And when all of a sudden the convenience becomes inconvenient, they throw their hands up and say, we're done. We've gone separate ways. That must not be so for the church. That must not be so. Divorce was not so from the beginning. We saw this in the Malachi passage, but listen, God does not change. He shows steadfast love and faithfulness to those who belong to him. He is long-suffering toward us. He pardons our iniquities and he cleanses us of our unrighteousness. Marriage ought to bear witness to this. A man should not change, but should love his wife steadfastly and stay faithful to her and likewise for the wife. This declares the glory of God to the watching world. And we can all have this because he designed it so. Let us not be those who say, woe is me. I can't live up to the standard. But I'm telling you, the creator himself has knit us in such a way to live fruitful, faith-filled lives in marriage. It's from him, it's for him, and it's to him. We can be the people he's designed us to be. So as we conclude, marriage is a most sacred, most sacred covenant established by God from the very beginning. It is the joining and arranging of order and also of female and male relations. This is, this is amazing. And I, if you're taking notes, uh, you might want to write this down. In the same way that woman was made for man and not man for woman, we see in marriage that mankind was made for God and not God for mankind. It is the union of a male and female. As such, marriage reveals both the diversity and unity of the triune God. It is a glimpse of oneness in such a union. In this, we see the mystery of the gospel revealed. Marriage tells the story of Christ leaving home to find and secure a wife, that he might love her, redeem her, and glorify her, and that she would love him, serve him, and bring pleasure to him with her conduct. It is insoluble as a covenant. What God has put together, let not man separate. Marriage was designed to be held and kept together by God and God alone. In the same way, the Father's love toward us in Christ entirely rests on him. It is not up to us, but rather God, who is faithful. Therefore, therefore, let marriage be honored by all, that Christ be exalted above all, for he is the king of marriage. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of our all. And I pray that your word would be the standard we hold high and we seek to live under. Your word is good. It's challenging. 
and yet it is life-giving all the while. You have promised to draw near to those who first draw near to you. And I pray now that we would confess our failure in honoring marriage and our failure to be faithful spouses in marriage and to present ourselves to you in all corners of life. I pray that you would use us, Lord, that you would cause us to be witnesses of the glory of the Godhead and of the gospel through our marriages. Father, would we as a church have faithful, godly households who seek to honor you with all that we do. We know that the world is watching and we, we want to exalt you among the nations for you are worthy. Please move in our midst. Would you be magnified in us and through us for your name's sake, King Jesus. Amen. All right, as we move to the, to the table of the Lord's Supper, I thought it to be particularly fitting. This, Paul instructs us that this it is an act that proclaims the Lord until he comes. But what, what's going to happen when he returns? Those who belong to him will get to join him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, the seer, John, he sees this and he hears this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What we get to participate in now is like a rehearsal dinner for the marriage to come. And because we're proclaiming that picture now, it is, it's incumbent on us to present ourselves holy now. He says, on that day, the bride will be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. She will finally and perfectly uh, be perfectly holy in the eyes of, of her groom. That's us. We are the bride. And he's desiring to sanctify us that we might be glorified with him. He is washing us with his word now. And so as we come to the table, let us look to Christ, trusting him for the righteousness he gives us. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And so this is a time where those who are marked as being members of the body of Christ, for those of you that are baptized and have, because of that, are joined to the body, this is a time for us to rejoice and to practice, if you will, for the marriage supper to come.